Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for April 11th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. This is Slash Film senior writer Ben Pearson, and joining me today are writers Chris Evangelista. Hello. And Huay Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. Threw you guys off with the switching up the introductions. I know. I, I was, normally I was do surprised other. for a second. <laughs> I'm used to going second. Got to keep I'm you guys on your toes, too. man. Got to keep <laughs> it going. Got to keep things fresh. All right. So let's jump into the news and let's start. I, I've been gone all morning uh, at a press junket that I can't talk about yet. I'm sure I'll be able to talk about it on a future episode of the show. But uh, I'll, I mentioned that only to admit to you guys that I haven't read any of the stories that you've written today. So I'm sort of serving as like a moderator and an audience member at the same time in today's episode. So I'm kind of excited for you guys to teach me some stuff today. Uh, HT, let's start with you. MoviePass's CEO wants the newly acquired movie phone to be their own Rotten Tomatoes. What is going on here? Yeah, so we know that MoviePass acquired MoviePhone last week, and a couple eyebrows are raised when that happened because it seemed a bit of a redundant purchase. MoviePhone is mostly known for, uh, back in the 90s, being a telephone service which would list off movie showtimes, and now its website mostly just lists showtimes and um, some news stories and um, ratings from other sites, so it's Definitely a, a site that's in need of a severe rebrand. And MoviePass uh, CEO Mitch Lowe hopes that MoviePass will be able to provide that rebrand. So MoviePass wants to use MoviePhone. There's going to be a lot of movies going on in the <laughs> sentences as a sort of launch pad for its own version of Rotten Tomatoes. So uh, in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, um, Mitch Lowe said, our subscribers are telling us they want to be able to get recommendations or read reviews by MoviePass subscribers. They don't want to go to other sites. They ha want to have it all in one place. MoviePhone kind of gives us a running start at building content for our subscribers. So MoviePhone um, has a pretty big audience already, and I think that MoviePass wants to use that audience base as a way to test out how to be a one-stop shop for movie-going audiences. So essentially, they already have the ticket-buying part of that market cornered, but now they want to have the whole process uh, sort of dominated. 
because we know that a lot of people, when they go to see a movie, they want to check out reviews beforehand and see what the general consensus is. So once MoviePass has like audience reviews or aggregate or something aggregated there, then they'll be able to be like the one-stop shop essentially. So this strikes me as like the, I guess it's not that recent, but the trend of um, Hollywood movie studios quoting uh, Twitter users in their trailers. I'm sure you guys have seen this before. Uh, it just it seems like, okay, so Rotten Tomatoes, and uh, forgive me, I'm, I'm sort of processing this as you're explaining it to me. So if these ideas are idiotic, feel free to shoot me down as, as always. <laughs> but uh, I, I feel like Rotten Tomatoes is already as simplified and streamlined as it gets. It's an aggregator that collects movie reviews from all over the place and provides and just like spits out this number right so they want the same thing but just from like quote-unquote real movie fans instead of critics is that what it seems yeah. like it's, it's sort of like drawing this distinction between uh you know it, it's furthering the distinction between fans and critics as if that line yeah, isn't big enough already that's the my least favorite part of his whole quote in that he buys into that uh really popular but really annoying assumption that critics aren't movie fans like you know movie critics do go out to enjoy movies that's why they went into the film criticism business in the first place so that it's kind of furthering that wedge between um critics and audiences that's kind of ongoing on rotten tomatoes itself i think what they're going for here is they want to just um have everything on one app it's like reviews and general like general sort of uh, opinion so that it can drive more people going to the theaters. Um, and because users tend to be a little bit more, um, I guess, positive on first reaction than more in-depth movie uh, reviews, then I think that's that's what they're going for in terms of like how that will drive more movie pass users, et cetera. Right. But yeah, I, I dislike that sort of assumption as well. Uh, Chris, do you have any thoughts about this? Uh, just Just to weigh in and say that once again, I am. I hate when people use this language when they say, "This is for quote unquote real movie fans." Stop it. Uh, there's, this, it, it, that's idiotic. Every, people who review movies are movie fans. It's not that complicated. I don't understand why people can't figure this out. The reason people go into film criticism is because they love movies. So please, before I pull all my hair out of my head, stop, <laughs> stop saying things like this. Says yeah. the Ready Player One hater. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, bringing up some. I, well, I haven't seen that yet either, so it's, it's I can't say soon. anything. It's too soon, HT. The pain <laughs> Sorry, is still Chris. fresh on Chris's part there. Um, so yeah, all right. Well, let's let's move on from that to uh, maybe something a little bit more <laughs> cheerful, and that is that Paul Thomas Anderson has just directed an Adam Sandler Netflix special. This is sort of a surprise. Chris, tell us about this. Oh, yeah, this is a surprise for everyone, it seems, because um, a little while back, uh, last week, actually, there was an announcement that Adam Sandler would be recording a, uh, a special at the El Rey Theater in Los Angeles. Uh, and, you know, it was announced it was going to be filmed for Netflix. And I think everyone just sort of shrugged off like, you know, whatever. But now uh, people who were at the, um, the, the, the filming of the event, which was last night, April 10th, found out that Paul Thomas Anderson 
was the person filming the special. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson, of course, directed Adam Sandler in uh, Punch Trunk Love. So this is a reunion of them of sorts. And this is interesting because I'll admit that before I knew this, I had zero interest in watching this special. But now that I know Paul Thomas Anderson is directing it, I'm definitely going to check it out when it arrives on Netflix. So I... I guess I I maybe I should have uh, reached out to our own Brad Omen, who's a, a big comedy fan and probably watches a ton of uh, um, stand-up specials and stuff like this. But maybe you guys do too. What uh, what do you think a director like PTA could bring to a stand-up special? Because the directing of those is typically not the most exciting or like groundbreaking or even noticeable aspect of them. Um, HG, do you have any thoughts about that? I was actually wondering about that myself because the camera is pretty stationary when it comes to stand-up specials uh, just because, you know, it's required that it's just the comedian standing up on its own on a stage. So I have no idea. Maybe it'll be akin to the sort of more auteur-directed music videos we've seen in which there's some little stylish flares, but I don't really know what what really he could bring to it. Chris, do you have any thoughts? I don't know. I mean, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson filmed a uh, a concert film, and he used, like, drones and stuff like that. I don't know if he's going to do that for this, but uh, I am just – I'm just basically really curious to see what he does with this material, honestly, because I, I can't even picture what it's going to look like. Yeah, I was just looking this up while you were talking, and I thought I remembered this correctly, and I, I apparently did, that uh, Gerard Carmichael, the comedian, um, did an HBO special, I think this was in 2014, and Spike Lee directed it, and I remember watching that being like, oh, that that's kind of interesting, I wonder what Spike Lee is going to bring in terms of like directorial flourishes and things like that, and it was just like a traditional comedy special that like conceivably could have been directed by anyone who knows what they're doing behind a camera, so uh, I, I wonder if this is just one of those things where um he paul thomas anderson likes comedy we know he's a big comedy fan and and maybe he just wanted to work with adam sandler again and it's not going to be like a noticeable pta product but i would like to think that he would uh you know elevate the the genre in some way but uh but i guess we'll have to see um do we know anything about when this is coming out did you say that already chris i'm sorry uh i don't think there's a a date yet i mean it just filmed last night so i mean but i can't imagine there's gonna be like a huge turnaround time it's not like they need to add special effects or anything like that so i'm, guess, I'm guessing it'll be out sooner rather than later or do they oh, yeah um, maybe <laughs> yeah all right so uh the next story on our list is that a black adam movie might actually begin filming in 2019 according to Dwayne Johnson. So for those who don't know, Black Adam is a, uh, a DC Comics anti-hero. He started out as a villain, I guess, and, and became more of an anti-hero um, uh, over the years. And, you know, he's sort of like towed the line of being a good guy and a bad guy in various forms throughout the comics. And uh, Dwayne Johnson, I looked this up on, on Slash Films archives. He has been attached to play Black Adam in a live-action movie since 2007. So it's been over 10 years at this point that he's been hyping up this film. So this is just the the latest, I guess, the caboose in the the ongoing hype train, uh, where he says that the script came in, it's great, we're working on it, we're very excited about it. If things come together in the way we anticipate them coming together, that feels like a 2019 movie in production. So he was clarifying that, that that's when he would theoretically film this uh as we all know Dwayne Johnson who is starring in Rampage which comes out uh, I believe this Friday uh, is an extraordinarily busy guy um 
he is constantly Instagramming photos of script sessions and all these different things. He's got like, I don't know, 10 projects in development or something at any given day. Uh, what's this movie called? Black Adam does not have a director attached yet. So I'm curious to see if those sort of behind the scenes pieces are going to be able to come together in time for them to actually start filming this thing. I would not be surprised if Brad Payton, who directed Rampage and uh, the other big Dwayne Johnson action extravaganza film San Andreas uh, would, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if he came on board because Johnson really loves working with collaborators that he's worked with a bunch of times before. There's like a familiarity there. So that could be something, but I'm, I'm curious to see what you guys think about this. Uh, do you think that the Black Adam movie will happen even if Shazam does not perform well when that movie comes out in April of next year? Because Black Adam and Shazam are characters who have been traditionally linked in the comics. They've faced off, you know, many, many, many times. Um, so let's pretend there's, there's nothing to indicate that Shazam is going to be a failure in any way, but let's pretend it is. Do you think that DC will forge ahead and make this Black Adam movie anyway? Chris, what do you think? I guess, it, I mean, they've... They've, it seems like they've devoted so much time to this. It would be weird to drop it just because, like you said, The Rock has been talking about this for over 10 years. I mean, it'd be weird for them to just not do it, but I don't know. H2? Yeah, I remember they were developing a Black Adam movie long before Shazam ever got greenlit, which I thought was, which I always thought was really odd, but it kind of made sense with Dwayne Johnson as the sort of box office draw and now even more so after the hits of uh jumanji and i guess rampage well he's just the big box office star right now so yeah um i think i get the feeling that they'll probably go through with it even if uh, shazam does not do well just because i don't really know dc and warner brothers film strategy they just kind of throw a lot of ideas at the wall as <laughs> As of now. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of what I was getting at to see if you guys had any underlying sense of what uh, what DC and Warner Brothers might be planning. But of course, that's a uh, an indecipherable plan at this point. We still have a lot of questions about what they're doing over there. Um, and we'll talk about another one of their properties a little bit later in just a few minutes. Uh, before we get to that, though, let's talk a little bit about Netflix. I think we talked about this when the idea was initially floated this may have been like a few weeks ago but uh, according to a new report netflix has pulled all of its films out of the Cannes film festival following a ban on competition ht tell us what that means and what's going on so um can the Cannes film festival actually banned uh basically all Netflix films from competing at the festival about a month ago. And now in response to this sort of escalating feud between old and new cinema, Netflix uh, has pulled all of its films out of the Cannes Film Festival. So um, this ban, which was, this rule change was enacted about uh, a month ago, March 26th, and it essentially prevented any um like Netflix and other streamers from showing their films in competition at Cannes unless they plan to release their films theatrically in France. And this was something that Netflix wasn't uh, willing to sort of go around because they depended on their day-to-date -day releases for their movies, uh, same-day theatrical and streaming releases. So Netflix essentially was not budging, and now they've just pulled all their movies out of Cannes altogether uh, because Cannes said, even with this rule change, that Netflix could screen their movies, but out of competition. But in sort of a, a 
F you, a little middle finger to can. They just, Netflix is just not attending altogether. Um, and Ted Sarandos um, sort of confirmed this in an interview with Variety. Uh, he's the chief content officer for Netflix. And he made a couple jabs at um, can during this interview, but um, he said that we want our films to be on fair ground with every other filmmaker. There's a risk in us going in this way and have our films and filmmakers treated disrespectfully at the festival. They set the tone. I don't think it would be good for us to go there. So, and, he, and then he continued, the rule was explicitly about Netflix and Thierry Frameau, who is the um, uh, Cannes Festival head, made it explicitly about Netflix when he announced the rule. So this means that the long unfinished Orson Welles movie, The Other Side of the Wind, uh, which is restored which is being restored by Netflix, as well as Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, Paul Greengrass's Norway, Jeremy Saunier's Hold the Dark, and Morgan Nelville's uh, Orson Welles documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, all won't premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. So I think we covered a lot of, um, I guess, our general thoughts about this when we first, I guess, when that initial ban happened, and now this is like uh, Netflix's sort of response to this, right? Like they're, instead, mm -hmm. of, um, instead of releasing films... At, or, or debuting films at the festival that are not in competition, they're just responding and saying, okay, fine, uh, you know, we're taking our ball and going home, essentially, right? So, mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I, I don't think our general thoughts about what this means will have changed in the, the past few weeks, but I guess, I don't know if I, and I apologize to the listeners if you guys remember this conversation better than I do, but I, I want to ask uh, HT and Chris, do you guys think that Netflix could just sort of roll over and play ball with this because essentially all it would mean for them to be able to participate in this festival is that they would have to release a movie in a theater in France at the same time that it plays at Cannes. Is that right? Like they could probably just get away with like putting their movies in theaters for a week or a few days or something. I'm not sure about the rules. Does that sound right, HD? The law in France basically dictates that you can not have a film premiere digitally uh, before it's been in theaters for 36 weeks. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just like totally way yeah. off then. So there's, okay. So I understand now a little bit more about why Netflix wants to do this because it's not as easy as just premiering it at the same time uh, mm -hmm. in, in that country. It's, it's more um, strict than that. So, okay. Uh, I guess, I mean, unless either of you have changed your minds since the last time and you feel like Netflix uh, it should play ball with can, I guess we can move on. Has, have either of you <laughs> uh, come to a, a different conclusion? conclusion since the last time we spoke about this, Chris or HD? I mean, I will say that I think there is some merit to both sides of the conversation, but they're both being really pig-headed in their approaches. So, like, for example, can just outright banning Netflix films, no matter the filmmaker, just because of their distribution method uh, is ridiculous. But I do understand what they're sort of saying about uh, like Netflix movies going straight to this streaming service where they kind of end up disappearing. But the way that they go about it and the way that they're trying to, they're basically approaching it as in like movie theaters are the end all be all of cinema. doesn't really make sense to me. But I think like if you mine this sort of feud for meaning that you could find sort of like a really interesting sort of debate about where movies how movies should evolve for audiences today but i think that like this conversation is sort of now just become black and white 
is it theaters or is it streaming? Right. Yeah. And it seems like it seems like the work is being put the workload is being put on us to to have that conversation instead of the people the the actual players in the you know it, who it who it directly affects right who like they mm-hmm. they could be having a more detailed nuanced subtle conversation about this but instead they're just sort of uh yeah drawing lines in the sand but um chris do you think that i i think a part of the Cannes film festival's reluctance here is what hc just said like the idea that a lot of netflix movies sort of get buried on their streaming platform do you think that netflix might there might be some way for them to distinguish between the films that they release on their platform like maybe create like a a subcategory like a netflix premium or something like that where they you know like a, like a separate category for films that they consider award worthy and maybe that would do something to alleviate some of these troubles? Do you think anything like that is possible, probable, or uh, reasonable in any way? <laughs> I mean, it's definitely reasonable. Netflix really needs to step up their game as far as pushing their movies. I mean, if you go on to Netflix, half the time there's new stuff they have that's not right there on that landing page, and it really should be. So I don't know... I don't know why they're so hesitant to push things like that. I mean, I know when award season comes they'll send out screeners and they'll send out like a postcard saying for your consideration. But I I don't know why the rest of the year they're so uh, blase about it. I I really don't understand even the reasoning behind that because why invest all this money if you're not going to be proud of it? It's like joining a band and then just not playing gigs. It's like, well, just play in the (laughs) basement. Like, you know, what are you doing? You might as well put all your effort into it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Our next story is uh, about uh, the the DC thing that I, I mentioned earlier. The the connection there. Uh, it's all coming full circle, guys. So Joaquin Phoenix has been long rumored to take over the role of the Joker in a new DC Comics movie, and now he has spoken about uh, the iconic performance that Heath Ledger left behind. HT, tell us what Joaquin Phoenix is thinking about the Joker at this point. So uh, Joaquin Phoenix responded to the reports that he was going to play uh, the Joker in the Todd Phillips uh, origin movie with a sort of non-answer. But he did say that in response to sort of questions about whether Heath Ledger's Joker would at all impact his performance, he kind of talked about how that legacy wouldn't exactly, wouldn't at all impact how he would possibly approach this character. So... I will read out the whole quote. It's a little bit long. It's different than this character from literature being uniquely that. There are different interpretations. It's so interesting. I was just thinking about it today. It seems so unique in some way to comic books. I think there's probably room for that. Maybe it's like doing a play. Like you always hear about people doing something. You should have seen this actor in this performance, but then other actors do it and it's kind of a different film. I think that genre comic books kind of lend itself to having different people play the same character and interpret it in a different way. It's kind of built into the source material in some ways. So he didn't exactly speak. um, He didn't exactly name Heath Ledger's performance, but this was something that the interviewer asked him about. So he basically said, that he, if he were to take the role, that Heath Ledger's legacy and, and other performers who've taken on the role before him wouldn't at all sort of um, hew his in, in, his interpretation of this uh, this character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chris, I know that you wrote a review recently of you were is it called you were never really here. 
you were yes okay you were never really here which is uh lynn ramsey's new movie that stars joaquin phoenix and i saw that film as well he he basically plays like this a hulking brute who uh, enacts revenge and, and goes after uh, and tries to save uh, small girls who have been put into like sexual slavery. It's a pretty bleak movie, but um, seeing that and hearing this quote, what do you think about the idea of Joaquin Phoenix, the performer as we know him in 2018, potentially playing the Joker? Is this something that makes sense to you or is this like a totally off the wall idea? I mean, first and foremost, I think a, a standalone Joker movie is a terrible idea. But if Joaquin Phoenix plays that character, uh, there's no way I could resist seeing that. I, I honestly think Joaquin Phoenix is one of the best actors working right now. I mean, there's almost no one else like him right now. He, the way he, he throws himself into a performance, it's it's just incredible. So I'm... Like I said, I'm not exactly clamoring for a Joker movie, but if it gets made and if he is playing the Joker, I will definitely see it. It's certainly going to be fascinating. I, I kind of hope he does end up playing it just to see what he does with the, the choices of that character. And the idea that we've talked about this before on the podcast, that he would be playing like a struggling stand-up comedian, like all, all of it is just so far away from the Joaquin Phoenix that I know. I mean, like even this, the quotes that HT just read they sound like the the Joaquin Phoenix that that I know is a uh, is a performer who really doesn't like doing press that much. So I'm surprised he would even engage with this question and answer it at all, even in like the vague you know quasi vague way that he did here. Um, but HT, do you think that uh, a Joaquin Phoenix Joker movie is something you'd be interested in? I think I would only be interested if it was Joaquin Phoenix, essentially along the same lines as uh, Chris said, because everything else about this movie just seems so ridiculous to me and just kind of far-fetched. So I'm not really sure what it could turn out to be unless it was anchored by a strong performer like Joaquin. And what you were saying before about like Joaquin Phoenix not really doing press and really speaking about these kind of things, the, as the interview does go on, it's kind of a, it's a funny read. I recommend reading it. He just kind of gets more tight-lipped and or confused as the interviewer tries pressing him about Batman stuff. Like at one point the interview starts talking about comic books and Joaquin Phoenix is like, I have no idea what we're talking about. So <laughs> he might just like be spitting out like whatever he, what he's just kind of rolling on about something. So <laughs> he might not even be talking about this movie. <laughs> Amazing. All right. Uh, so our next story is about Alex Garland, who is the writer director of films like Ex Machina and Annihilation he has a new uh, script. He's not directing this movie, but he uh, just sold a new script called, uh, to TriStar Pictures, and the script is called The Toymaker's Secret. This is uh, uh, the movie, quote, tells the story of an American family who moves into an old Victorian house in London and begins to believe it might be haunted. So with just that uh, description and the idea that this is an Alex Garland movie, uh, I'm sure those of you out there who have not heard about this project before are already sort of conjuring something in your mind uh, about what what kind of tone and what sort of film this might be. But I'm here to tell you that it's probably going to be way different than that because this film is also being described as family friendly, which is not something that I would uh, a, a term that I would apply to any of Alex Garland's previous films, really. Uh, he is writing the script, but the director of it is going to be a woman named Paloma Beza, who is a uh, an award winning writer director. She um, 
or I'm sorry, a writer animator. She did the a lot of animation on this stop motion short called Poles Apart, which starred Helena Bonham Carter, and she won a BAFTA and an Annie Award for writing that script and, and for her work on that uh, film, and she is going to be making her directorial debut on this project. She also happens to be Alex Garland's wife, so that's an interesting connection there. Um, the idea of Alex Garland making a family-friendly haunted house movie is very fascinating to me just because of his existing body of work and like I said, it, you know, the stuff that he's done would not really point you to to believe that he would be capable of doing so, capable or interested in, in doing something like this. Um, HT, I know you're a fan of Alex Garland's more uh, cerebral films. What do you think about him making a family-friendly haunted house story? I'm kind of intrigued just because it seems so out of his his comfort zone that I really want to see what he does with it. And I am of the opinion that even if something is family friendly, that doesn't mean it can't be challenging or a compelling story. So I think Alex Garland could possibly bring something really interesting to uh, this script. And I think a haunted house movie could definitely use something like something new and refreshing from Mm. someone like Alex Garland. Uh, Chris, are you interested in this? And do you think this could potentially signal uh, a whole new series of doors opening up for Alex Garland as a storyteller? I mean, I'm definitely interested. I'm pretty much interested in anything that's like a a haunted house story. No matter how terrible it is, I'll watch it. That's like a <laughs> obsession I have. So I'm definitely interested, especially because he's involved with it. So, I mean, yeah, the family friendly thing gives me a little pause, but uh, I guess I guess we'll see how it turns out. All right, and our next story involves the Avengers Infinity War, which is coming out at the end of this month, and there is a really um, surprising statistic about this film's pre-sale that it's earned so far. H.T., tell us about this. So Avengers Infinity War has reportedly already sold more advanced tickets than the last seven Marvel Cinematic Universe movies combined. So that's the combined might of Black Panther, Captain America Civil War, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, Thor Ragnarok, Ant-Man, Spider-Man Homecoming, and Doctor Strange. Um, it's This is uh, announced by Fandango, which didn't give the exact numbers just because we never really learn about how many pre-sale tickets movies actually get. But this is, um, Avengers Infinity War has reportedly um, overtaken Black Panther's spot as the number one superhero pre-seller in Fandango history and um, is has already um, become the ticketing service's top April pre-seller, um, surpassing 2015's Furious 7. So uh, Fandango is only one of a few different places that people can buy tickets, so we should point that out just to start. But I think they did, I think I saw a statistic where they they sold like 30% of the box office grosses or, or pre-sales anyway for uh, for Black Panther. So it's like a pretty significant percentage. And for Avengers Infinity War to <laughs> have all of this, uh, these pre-sales that are more than the seven previous MCU movies combined is kind of shocking to me because I, you know, the trailers have come out. Of course, you see people talking about it, but to me, it hasn't felt like the same sort of groundswell of support that Black Panther was getting in the lead up to that film. Chris, is, is this a surprising revelation to you that this movie has done this well? Or is this sort of like, uh, of course, you should have seen this coming kind of thing? I guess it is and it isn't. I knew it was going to do well, but this is, um, I, like they're doing monumental numbers here. But I mean, I guess you know, it, it makes sense because... Uh, 
this is like everything Marvel has been building to. It, this really feels like, I don't know, like as far as I'm concerned, I'm, I've always feel like whenever a new MCU film comes out, it's like, all right, this is just another MCU film. I'll see it. It'll probably be good, but it's just another entry in this series. But this film, I don't know if it's through marketing or if it's because, you know, since I write for Slash Film, I'm constantly seeing Infinity War stories. It just feels like this is like the end of an era. It feels like they actually are going to change a lot of things with this film. I mean, that could all be marketing. You know, we'll have to wait and see how much really changes after this, but it really does feel like a big deal. So I guess that might explain why it's doing so well with these pre-sales. Yeah, I'm very curious to see if it's going to perform financially on the level of Black Panther because that film, as we know, we've talked about, you know, ad nauseum since it's come out, is, has been like a, a full-on box office sensation. And I know that Avengers Infinity War is going to do very well, but it's just a matter of, at this point, of how well it's going to do. So we'll have to see, and we'll be closely following that uh, as the month continues. And now let's move on to our last story of the day, and that is, uh, I, I saved this one for last so we could throw up a spoiler warning here for anyone who has not seen Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One. There is one scene in this movie that you've probably heard about, and uh, Chris, I'm going to ask you to tell us about how Steven Spielberg brought this particular scene to life. So if anybody has not seen the movie and don't want to be spoiled, tune out now, but uh, everybody else, stick around because this is pretty fascinating stuff. Yes. Yeah, so um, as we mentioned earlier, I'm not a big fan of Ready Player One, but there's one scene in the film that really impressed me. And it's a scene where the characters uh, end up in the Overlook Hotel from The Shining. And it looks exactly as it looks in Stanley Kubrick's film. Like it's identical. Like and down it, it to really, the grain, too, almost. Right. You know, it looks it really like totally different from any other part of the movie. Yeah, it really blew me away because you know, the rest of the movie, and this is one of the problems I had with the movie, is almost everything else in the movie looks really fake. And it's intentionally fake because it's supposed to be in this virtual world, but that really bugged me. Where, But then out of nowhere, they go to the Overlook Hotel and it looks real. And I was... I was, you know, I don't get like this this much often because I see so much, so many movies, but that scene literally made me stop and wonder, how did they do this? How did Steven Spielberg do this, you know, make this look so much like Kubrick's film? And uh, a part of me was wondering if they actually went out and rebuilt a set, but apparently not. What they did was they found a, uh, this is, this is a direct quote from uh, io9 who got this info from the Art of Ready Player One book. Uh, it says, quote, unquote, the team at ILM found a high quality, high quality telesign transfer of The Shining, scanned it into their computers as a reference and began to digitally recreate the locations needed in the film. So this really is it's all it's pretty much all digital. They built a few sets here and there for close ups. But beyond that, this is literally just a digital scan of Kubrick's film that they just dropped into this film. And it looks incredible. And you know, uh, had the whole film had stuff like this in it, I probably would have liked it a lot more. But this one scene, you know, as much as I don't like Ready Player One, I will uh, freely admit this is a really good scene. And um, I'm, I was really impressed with it. So, HG, you've not seen Ready Player One yet, right? I haven't. Yeah, no. Okay. Uh, do you plan on seeing it or are you just going to like wait for home video or what? 
I mean, I'll probably see it. I have Movie Pass. I might as well. <laughs> there you go. That's the perfect thing for Movie Pass. Um, I, I think I was listening to the Slash Filmcast's review of Ready Player One, and I forget which uh, member, which host it was, was talking about. Um, they would have liked to see uh, Ready Player One utilize more sets like these in terms of like baking it into the story where the characters actually go into the worlds of different movies chris is that something that you think i know you're not a big fan of ready player one is that something that you think would have made the movie more interesting to you like seeing different uh, the characters step into different cinematic worlds like this i do um uh, let me preface this by saying i by no means think Christopher Nolan is a better filmmaker than Steven Spielberg. He's not. Steven Spielberg is the better filmmaker. But while watching Ready Player One, I couldn't help think of uh, Inception, where you know everything in Inception is technically not real. They're in a dream. But at the same time, everything in that movie still looks real. It looks like a physical world. And I kept wishing Spielberg had just taken that same approach, where we know it's a digital world, but it still looks realistic because I do feel like if he had done that, I probably would have liked the movie a little bit more. Yeah. Well, the art of ready player one, I think that's a book that's coming out soon. So maybe there'll be some more revelations about the making of the movie that we can find in there. And, and hopefully, uh, even if we didn't particularly love the film, maybe there'll be some more cool things about the making of it, and that'll be uh, interesting in its own right. But uh, that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of Slash Film Daily. Before we go, let's check in with you guys. Tell us where we can find more of your work online. Uh, Chris, let's start with you. Uh, I'm at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at SeaEvangelista413. And HT? I'm also at SlashFilm.com, and I'm on Twitter at HTranBooey. And I am at SlashFilm.com as well. You can find me on Twitter at Ben Pears. I am going to link in the show notes to all of these articles that we talked about today, as well as uh, Chris's review of You Were Never Really Here. So check that out. And you can find, uh, yeah, I just said that. You can find more about all these stories at at SlashFilm.com. So go there. Do it. If you're listening to this show, please go to the website and read these stories that we spend our days writing. Uh, SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features that you can find at the site. Please uh, feel free to subscribe to the show on uh, iTunes, Google Play, Overcast. You know the drill. You know where you can find these things, all the popular podcast apps. And be sure to send in feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Shoot us an email, leave your name and general geographic location in case we end up reading it on the air. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. That really does help us out. So just take a couple minutes if you are a fan of the show. Leave us a review. Uh, tell your friends about the show. Spread the word any way you can. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you tomorrow.